It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Tom Shalhoub. I'm Maria Bartiromo, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The polling may not look great, but the governor of Florida isn't worried about that, at least not yet, as the DeSantis campaign looks to narrow the field ahead of Iowa with this week's first Republican presidential debate hosted by Fox News. The only rival in this uh, primary Ron DeSantis has is Donald Trump. This is a two-man race. I'm Chris Foster. The space race now is to the far side of the moon to get there and eventually stay there and get to what's underneath the surface. Maybe it's just the capability of living on the moon for long periods of time for people that just want to go on vacation. (laughs) Or maybe it is, in fact, you know, using these capabilities for mining and bringing things back to Earth. We're speaking with former NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. After winning re-election as Florida's Republican governor last November, Ron DeSantis smiled brightly upon hearing this chant. But it's been a bumpy ride since he entered the race in late May. Former President Trump dominates the polls. Once a DeSantis ally, he has taken credit for DeSantis's political success and criticized him as well as his campaign. A mega donor to a super PAC supporting DeSantis said he'd stop donating to see if DeSantis would shift and attract more moderates. DeSantis then laid off roughly a third of his campaign staff. He told Fox's Harris Faulkner after some of this surfaced. Look, at the end of the day, you're looking at return on investment on everything. I set out the vision. If that vision is not realized, I make changes to be able to get us going forward. Since then, the governor criticized Republican Party leaders in Congress who support former President Trump in an interview with the Florida Standard, calling them listless vessels and that following one man's social media posts is not a durable movement. After Trump called that his basket of deplorables moment, DeSantis told Fox's Martha McCallum. The people in Congress that I was referring to that have attacked me and tried to say somehow that that I was a rhino, uh, they're putting entertainment and personality over principle. Uh, Our voters want us to stand on principle and fight for them. Also, in recent days, a memo was released or leaked by a super PAC supporting DeSantis with notes about how the governor should debate at the first Republican presidential debate hosted by Fox News. DeSantis told Fox's national political reporter Paul Steinhauser in New Hampshire. Well, on the memo, it's not mine. I haven't read it. Um, and, and it's just I think it's something that we, we have in the, uh, put off to the side. But in terms of the debate, look, when you're I know from the military, when you're over the target, that's when you're taking flack. And if you look really in the last six to nine months, I've been more attacked than anybody else. DeSantis says that means everyone views him as the threat. So it's a positive. Former President Trump does dominate the polling, and while DeSantis is in second, he's far behind. Though some polls, specifically in Iowa and New Hampshire, have Trump coming in with less than 50 percent. If correct, that could mean most Republicans, at least in those states, do want a candidate other than Trump. Ron DeSantis going into debate night is looking forward to talk to a national audience. Carly Atchison is the DeSantis presidential campaign national spokesperson. Millions of Americans who maybe haven't really tuned into the presidential race quite yet because they're still, you know, taking their kids to last minute summer camp or, you know, whatever is happening in normal life. And so this is an opportunity really for Ron DeSantis to present his 
forward-looking vision for the country um, to talk about what he's going to do to reverse this nation's decline, starting on day one with repealing Bidenomics, making life affordable for families, securing the border, declaring a national emergency on day one and deploying our military down there to get that done, rebuilding our nation's military, getting back to a mission first force, which is extremely important, especially to deter our enemies abroad, especially China. And so this is just a great opportunity to talk to those millions of Americans, get his forward vision out there and really get them a chance to see and know who Ron DeSantis is. A lot of people don't know that he's the only veteran in the race. They don't know that he's a father to three young kids and has a personal vested interest in getting this country back on track. So it's a really exciting opportunity. So you know this is being painted by some in like the pundit class as like this big make or break moment for the governor because, you know, as they're saying, so many hopes are riding on him being that lone alternative to former President Trump. So he's got to perform on Wednesday. Is that just hype and a reflection of how much of a spotlight is on this campaign? Or is there something to that? Is is there a lot of pressure right now? I think what it shows is that this is a two-man race. Everybody knows it. Trump knows it. Ron DeSantis has had $20 million spent against him. That's more money than Trump and Biden combined in negative ads. And so, again, a lot of people, if they've heard of Ron DeSantis, maybe they know he's been governor of Florida, uh, but they might have just seen a lot of the negative advertising. And so people talking about how there is pressure or a spotlight on DeSantis, that just shows that this is a two-man race. And what you can also expect and what we are expecting is for everybody on and off that stage to come after Ron DeSantis and try and land a punch. Again, because they know this is a two-man race. Uh, You have to go through Ron DeSantis. You can't go around him. We're prepared for Hmm. those attacks. And it's not going to deter or distract the governor, again, from sharing his plan and vision for the country moving forward, which is really what our focus is on Wednesday night. You know, Carly, some of those punches that people may try and land might have to do with some of the bumpiness of the road thus far, like downsizing staff, um, a, a mega donor saying he's not going to donate any more to that super PAC for now, um, saying he needs to appeal to more moderates. You know, the polls showing former President Trump dominating every candidate, not just um, the governor. Is the debate that chance to change that trajectory? Like, in other words, when you talk about somebody trying to land a punch, what, how does he deflect? I think what you're going to hear is, again, Ron DeSantis focusing on what Americans and what voters want to hear. American voters don't really care about a lot of the palace intrigue and what cable news pundits are talking about. They care about the fact that they are spending way more on gas and groceries than they used to. They care about the fact that um, our military is struggling right now. We're not recruiting in the same numbers. They care about we have an open border. Fentanyl is flowing into communities, not just border communities, but up in states like New Hampshire. And too often on the campaign trail, when Ron DeSantis is shaking hands at these parades and town halls, he's having to console parents who lost a child to an overdose. So that's Mm. what voters are focused on. And that's what Ron DeSantis is going to address on Wednesday. Tell me about Vivek Ramaswamy. His, his, he's been climbing in the polls, right? And it's Trump dominating, right? And then it's DeSantis being number two. And then it's split because there's so many candidates running. And we've seen one name sort of climbing up, Ramaswamy, 
Does the governor feel he has a particular rival at this debate? What does the campaign make of Ramaswamy's sort of gain? The only rival in this uh, primary Ron DeSantis has is Donald Trump. This is a two-man race. We had a new Des Moines Register poll out in Iowa where Ron DeSantis is the only candidate in the double digits and Vivek is below Chris Christie, who has the highest unfavorables of anybody in the race. So this is a two-man race. That's what we've said all along. Um, we're not going to get distracted by narratives that we feel are not reflective of what's happening on the ground. But again, the big focus for Ron DeSantis on Wednesday is really talking to the American people, sharing his plan to repeal Bidenomics, secure the border, and the weaponization of government. That's where his focus is going to be. This is the somebody who is a Navy veteran. He is mission-oriented, laser-focused, and so a lot of the chatter that you're hearing in the Beltway is not where our focus is. It's not where our focus has been. And it's not where Ron DeSantis's focus is going to be on Wednesday night. You know, the one thing you haven't mentioned when you've said what he's going to focus on is the sort of these sort of cultural issues that the governor has been focused on in his state. Um, I guess he, he would refer to it as woke related issues. Um, that has been a premier focus of his, and even in terms of legislation, and you haven't mentioned it once. Is, is there a sense at the campaign level that, look, yes, people might care about some of those conversations, but what they care more about right now is the stuff you're talking about, like the, our nation's defense, our economy? I think that wokeness is at the core of a lot of the problems that our country is facing. Uh, for example, in education, we need our kids to be educated, not indoctrinated, and so when you talk about how do we, you know, set our kids up for success, how do we prepare the next generation, the next workforce, we have to make sure that public schools are teaching our kids how to read, write, and do math and not focused on things like, you know, gender theory and a lot of these woke theories. So that's just one example. We've seen wokeness in the military. That's something that the governor addressed directly when he unveiled his mission first uh, policy down in South Carolina. We can't have a military that's focused on, you know, how woke we are. We have to have a military that's mission first. And again, DeSantis is somebody who is in a unique position to understand the importance of this, given that he's the only veteran in the race. So a lot of these issues, wokeness is at the core. And so there's no candidate who is more prepared to take that fight head on than Ron mm -hmm. DeSantis. Okay, Carly, tell me about the listless vessel remark. I'm not sure it rises to the level of the uh, attention it's getting, but he told the Florida Standard about, you know, Republican Party members in Congress that, that if they are listless vessels that are supposed to follow, you know, whatever happens to come down the pike through Truth Social every morning, that's not a durable movement. Okay. So now people have come out and said that, that, you know, former President Trump said this was DeSantis's basket of deplorables moment. You know, he's being criticized for calling people in the party listless vessels. What is the campaign response to that, to, to all of this? Well, the Trump campaign is clearly desperate. They spent 20 million in negative ads. Uh, that didn't work. They've attacked Ron DeSantis's personality. That's not working. That Des Moines Register poll I mentioned has Ron DeSantis with the highest favorability ratings of any candidate, including Trump. And now they're going to the tried and true liberal media tactic of lying to fit their narrative. Look, the truth is nearly $8 trillion was added to the national debt under the Trump administration. Hillary Clinton was never prosecuted. 
Trump didn't drain the swamp. He turned the country over to Dr. Fauci and D.C. bureaucrats when we needed leadership the most. And we have a choice to make in 2024. And this is Ron DeSantis' point. We have to choose a leader who is going to not do something for themselves, but do something for this country. That candidate is Ron DeSantis. We need somebody who is going to put the American people first, deliver results. A lot of candidates talk, but only Ron DeSantis delivers. And just to that point of the governor saying this is not a durable movement, you know, following, um, I guess, former President Trump's truth social commentaries. I wonder if the people who do follow President Trump the, in, the, in, the, in the polls, these 42 to 48 percent of Republican primary voters who say Trump is their guy, is, is it possible that at least for them, being on the Trump train in this way is a durable movement? I mean, to, to them at least. Yeah, maybe. But what we're hearing on the ground, and again, going back to that Des Moines Register poll I keep talking about, as many likely GOP caucus voters in Iowa are considering DeSantis as are considering Trump, 61% to 63%. And so I think the question on a lot of voters' minds, including those who supported President Trump, and by the way, that, that includes Ron DeSantis, is what are we going to do about it? We're seeing this weaponization of government. We're seeing the FBI and the DOJ attack Catholics and Americans who are pro-life. What are we going to do about it? Ron DeSantis has said that on day one, he would fire FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis is the only candidate in the race who's actually removed two politically motivated prosecutors in his state who are more focused on being woke than keeping a community safe. And that's what this comes down to. Again, we have a choice to make in 2024. And are we going to go with the weak and losing leadership of the past? Or do we choose a new candidate like Ron DeSantis, somebody who has the track record of delivering on the promises that he makes, uh, somebody who's going to get into office, not take any excuses, get things done on day one for the American people? Carly Atchison, DeSantis, presidential campaign spokeswoman. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary. Coming up. India's space agencies released new pictures of the far side of the moon taken by its Chandrayaan-3 spacecraft ahead of an attempted landing tomorrow. It's been a race with Russia. Its unmanned Luna 25 spacecraft was supposed to make a soft landing yesterday, but lost touch with Russia's space agency, careened out of control, and crashed on the moon's surface Saturday, nine days after launch. India's first attempt in 2019 ended with a crash, too. Three countries have had craft soft land on the near side of the moon, the U.S., Russia, and China, but nobody's landed on the far side yet. So I think there's a lot of interest in the moon. Former NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. We have now discovered that there's hundreds of millions of tons of water ice, especially on the south pole of the moon. Water ice represents H2O, which hydrogen, of course, is fuel. Oxygen, of course, is life support. It's air to breathe. And H2O is water to drink. So we think about that as just pure resources. The, the life support capabilities that exist with the water ice are pretty significant. It's also true that, you know, we think about rare earth metals that have a lot of value for a lot of different industrial activities. 
you know, supercomputers and other things, a lot of those materials are not earth materials at all. We call them rare earth um, elements, but they're but they're actually asteroid impacts, and in many cases from billions of years ago. The challenge with the earth is that you find these rare earth elements very sparingly, and when you do find them, um, they're in limited amounts. That's because Earth has a very active geology, a very active hydrosphere, a very active atmosphere. And all of these things mean that whatever impacted the Earth billions of years ago, it's not there today. So it's 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 in very trace amount. The moon is is unique in the sense that it doesn't have an active geology or an active hydrosphere. What that means is that anything that impacted the moon billions of years ago is today right where it was billions of years ago, including rare earth metals. So um although they wouldn't be rare earth, they'd be rare lunar. <laughs> right. Uh, then again, if we find them in large deposits... Not even that rare. rare. <laughs> so uh, so I think there's a lot of interest in just exploring and discovering, you know, could there be very valuable materials that could have tremendous value here on Earth? If there are resources on the moon to be used back on Earth as opposed to used on moon missions or bases, how could it be brought back? I mean, are there are there plans for cargo ships to the moon and back? I presume this stuff is heavy and cumbersome yeah. to transport. Absolutely. So we think about, for example, Starship. I mean, the whole purpose of SpaceX's Starship vehicle is to increase the amount of mass that can be taken to the moon. And so you, the key formula that you're trying to solve for is, what is the cost per unit mass to deliver to the moon? Starship is this supermassive vehicle. And so because it's so large, the cost per unit mass comes way down. So it's it's not just mass, it's also volume. And Starship is really trying to bring down the cost per unit mass to the moon. Uniquely, Starship is also capable of bringing things back from the moon. And because it's got such big mass and volume capabilities, it could be a game changer when it comes to bringing material home. In the long term, that's a commercial vehicle that can be used for all sorts of things that are not necessarily scientific in nature. Maybe it's just the capability of living on the moon for long periods of time for people that just want to go on vacation. Or maybe (laughs) it is, in fact, you know, using these capabilities for mining and bringing things back to Earth. It feels a little like the old West, Um, you know, prospectors rushing to, to find oil or find gold, except in this case, it's nations. Yeah, I think that's true. I would say, and as as it relates to the United States, uh, largely because of the work that I did as the NASA administrator, the goal is not for nations to necessarily be the only beneficiaries of the architecture that NASA is building. We want private companies to to work alongside us. So, for example, NASA is building architecture that includes what's called the lunar gateway. Think of a space station in orbit around the moon where you can have landing systems going back and forth to the moon between the moon and the gateway constantly. So you have basically round trip vehicles so that those vehicles can go back up to the gateway, get more fuel, go back down, take, you know, it could be humans, but it also it could be robotic rovers or other landers that maybe hop. So there's all kinds of different ways of getting access to the moon. And what NASA is building is infrastructure that commercial companies can benefit from. So it's really not just a race between nations. It's an opportunity that NASA is building for commercial companies to participate in more broadly. So this landing on the far side of the moon, uh, particularly important toward that end because of the resources that we presume are there. Why has nobody made it there before? Is it just, is it too hard? Is there something now making it more possible or is this just about urgency with more interest? 
So landing on the moon in and of itself is difficult. Uh, the United States of America for a long period of time after Apollo did not have in its policy mix, you know, an objective to go to the moon, let alone the far side of the moon. But the moon was not in the, you know, in the policy objectives of the United States. Um, President Trump put into place Space Policy Directive 1 as one of his first um, initiatives, and that was to go back to the moon sustainably. In other words, we're going to stay on the moon. We're going to go with commercial partners. We're going to go with international partners. We're also going to go with the first woman to the moon. Um, and we named the program Artemis after the goddess of the moon in Greek mythology. And she also was the twin sister of Apollo. So I guess the, the bottom line is we now have an objective to get to the moon. And there's a lot about the moon that we still don't know. How is the moon, uh, governs not exactly the right word, but you know what I mean. Tell me about, well, there are the Artemis Accords. Tell people what those are yeah. and how it's supposed to work. So the Outer Space Treaty is very clear that you cannot appropriate the moon or other celestial bodies for national sovereignty. Um, we think about the ocean. We can't own the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean for national sovereignty either. However, if we extract tuna from the ocean, we can own the tuna that we extract from the ocean. And that, that's true for the country. It's also true for private industry. If we extract energy from the ocean, a private company can own the energy that comes from the ocean, even though that private company and the country from whence that private company comes, they don't own the ocean. Those same principles should apply to the moon. So um, you can't own the moon, but what you can do is you can apply your own effort, your own equity, your own sweat. And based on the work that you put in, if you extract resources from the moon, you can own those resources that you extract from the moon. Um, and that's a key principle that we put into the Artemis Accords. When we created the Artemis program to go to the moon sustainably with commercial partners and international partners, the goal was to enable lots of different companies and countries to have access to the moon. But we also wanted to establish what the rules are. And the rules are, yes, you can extract resources, Yes, you can use those resources, but what you can't do is you can't own the moon. Who's to say that China, for example, um, lands on the South Pole, stakes a claim, says this is our area, it's ours, and work to sabotage anyone else? How is it enforced? There's really no enforcement mechanism, um, and there hasn't been. We Look, the, outer, the Outer Space Treaty has existed since 1969. And um, there's all kinds of provisions in there about, you know, if you destroy a satellite and you're liable, you've, you've got to pay for it. If if one of your satellites re-enters the atmosphere and damages property on the Earth, you know, there, there's a liability convention in the Outer Space Treaty. But it's only been enforced once in history. Um, and, and it was in the 1970s. Um, it was like a satellite tank or something that re-entered and hit Canada. And uh, Canada got like a three $3 million settlement from the former Soviet Union. Um, but it, but that's the only time. Things are happening in space all the time where satellites are breaking apart. People don't understand why. Some satellites quit working. And the assumption is, well, maybe the satellite just quit. Or maybe it hit some kind of micro meteor or something. But the reality is there, 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 are, <laughs> there are nefarious things happening in space. Sure. Um, because people can take advantage of that. So, and that's why we created the Space Force and U.S. Space Command and Space Development Agency and other things when when I happened to be at NASA. 
But I think when we think about the future, we've got to establish rules where people understand um, basic basic principles of international governance when it comes to space. I'm a Navy pilot by trade. And when I'm flying over international waters and I get queried by a, a foreign country that might not be friendly to the United States, I use the language due regard. I am a sovereign U.S. naval aircraft operating due regard in international airspace. If I use that word due regard, that sets in place many decades of law and precedent that says I can operate here and you can operate here too. We're not going to interfere with each other. We're going to respect each other's ability to freely operate, but we're not going to interfere. It's basically a non-interference kind of international standard. Well, that's the way the moon should be organized as well. The question that you brought up, though, is enforcement. Um, you know, that's yet to be determined. It's one of the reasons why it's important for all nations to come to an agreement on how to how to be able to live and work, not just on the moon, but eventually other celestial bodies, maybe Mars, because there's going to be some interest in, in the United States going to the South Pole. China wants to go to the South Pole of the moon, for example. On Mars, it's going to be the North Pole because there's lots of water ice on the North Pole of Mars. Does the establishment of a permanent base on Moon or in Moon's orbit, does that appreciably help getting to and from Mars? Or is the distance between Earth and the Moon so negligible that compared to the distance between the Moon and Mars that it really doesn't matter that much? Does it, Would it be a huge logistical help? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a tremendous help. So, um, you know, basically, a lot of the NASA scientists and engineers will tell you, look, if you can get to low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system. <laughs> Because it doesn't take that much energy after you get out of Earth's atmosphere. It doesn't take that much energy to get to a lot of places. And by the way, if you're in lunar orbit, it's really easy to push out a lunar orbit and go lots of different places. So the answer is yes. If you can stage activity capability um, in these places where it's it's easy to push out from, uh, then yes, uh, there's huge advantage to establishing you know, we call it the gateway today, but o over time, you could accumulate capability there where you build a larger space station that eventually pushes out to to maybe even orbit or land on Mars. Jim Bridenstine, former NASA administrator. Jim, please come back on next time uh, we have more space stuff to talk about. You bet. Anytime. Hear the news? Now you can. With instant updates from Fox News for Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play news from Fox. In Fox News. It's the latest when you need it. On demand from Fox News and Amazon Alexa. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Joe Concha. What's on your mind? Republican Governor Kim Reynolds and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis both support a ban on abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. GOP presidential frontrunner Donald Trump, however, has indicated he supports a 15-week ban as a more moderate threshold. This is what's applied in many European countries, for example, he says. Former vice president and current presidential candidate Mike Pence says, quote, we must not rest and must not relent until the sanctity of life is restored to the center of American law in every state in the land, unquote. 
This, while Senator Lindsey Graham argues, quote, we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand except in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America is at. All while other Republicans say the law should be decided as the Supreme Court intended in its Dobbs ruling last year on a state-by-state case basis. In other words, the Republican message on abortion is about as clear as mud. And it could cost them everything in 2024 when it comes to retaining power in the House, winning back the Senate by winning races in red states like Montana, West Virginia, and Ohio, and of course, winning back the White House after four years of the very Catholic, very pro-choice, Joe Biden. We already saw abortion play a major role in the 2022 midterms, which went from being what was supposed to be a red tsunami to a red ripple. We've seen elections recently in places like Kansas, a very deep red state, and Ohio, also now a red state, shoot down referendums in overwhelming fashion with both wins going to pro-choice advocates. Once the GOP has a nominee in place, the party must decide on a coherent, streamlined, easy-to-understand position on abortion. Because until then, Democrats will run on this issue and this issue alone since they're losing on every other important issue to voters, from the economy, to crime, to the border, to education, to foreign policy. And in a close election, that may be enough to tip the power in Washington permanently to the blue team. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Will Kane, co-host of Fox & Friends Weekend. Join me as I share my thoughts on a wide range of topics, from sports and pop culture to politics and business. The Will Kane Podcast. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.